p.m. Two and two to Harvey Keen. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung on and missed. A perfect episode of Remember That Guy, the show where we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present. I'm James, and Vin Scully Spirit isn't the only presence here in the booth with me today. Recovered from a long, debaucherous weekend in Atlantic City. Diaz back with you once again. And we're going to keep the perfection rolling, folks, because we have the perfect special guest for today's episode, a man who needs no introduction, but I'm giving him one anyway, because I like to ramble, but now <laughs> it's his turn to introduce himself. That's right, it's me, the very special guest, Xavier. Xavier, it's lovely to have you back with us once again. Let's just take a moment real quick to also acknowledge everyone, the new theme music, it's great, right? But anyway, back to our regular programming with Xavier, who's making memories for you right now. So it's less of a person and more of a concept. This has been a great month for sports docu-series. I recently finished the Arsenal All or Nothing uh, on Amazon, which I thought was fantastic. Even knowing how the season ended not the way that you know Arsenal fans or Ar- the Arsenal team wanted, I thought the, the series itself was 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 great. I, I loved every second of it. I even got Caitlin to watch like four episodes. I also just finished watching ESPN's The Captain documentary on Derek Jeter. You know, having grown up with all of that, it was really fun for me to see, you know, them bring back people like Bernie Williams, Jorge Posada, Mariano Rivera, Andy Pettit. There was so much that um, I hadn't really seen before. The, almost the entire seventh episode, the last episode, was focused on a lot of the diversity question uh, and Gita's relationship with his family and his, and his wife and health issues that almost led to her dying after childbirth. And there was just a, a lot of stuff that, because Jeter was so private during his career, that even diehard Yankees fans never would have really had a chance to to know before. So... If you're a fan of the Yankees, I highly highly recommend it. Even if you're not, there's a couple episodes that you that you'll probably like. The behind the scenes footage and seeing it in HD, you really get to see how it just makes it even more clear how overrated on defense he is. But that that's fine. I have been uh, uh, you know pretty clear in my belief that Derek Jeter, fantastic player, his defense was overrated for so long that it then became. The thing to trash on Derek Jeter because of the defense, forgetting the fact that he was also a really, really good offensive shortstop. So even he was the negative value from defense, he was still one of the top five offensive shortstops based on pretty much every counting stat. And so I think he became so overrated, he then became underrated in a weird sense. He like, He is the most rated player in baseball, I think. There is no one more right down the middle of the line rated than Derek Jeter. I think it's I think it's turned around to like a normal like yes, he was really really good. He is a Hall of Famer. He's not the best, but he is up there. And I think that is where he should be and I think it was a really good series. Not just that. You know, last week I talked about how I was excited for the Banana Land uh, series on the Savannah Bananas to come out and also came out today, uh, the day we were recording this, the 26th of August, Welcome to Wrexham, 
a Hulu FX docuseries uh, that I've just gotten to watch the first episode of on Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds buying Wrexham AFC, a club in Wales, which is one of the oldest clubs in the world, and they play in the fifth division of English soccer, the National League, which is the lowest professional league, but outside of the official professional football pyramid. So far, I thought I thought it was fantastic, and you know I'm really excited to see where the rest of that series goes. Yeah, some really really great sports docu series in the past month that I I highly recommend people check out. While we're on that topic, I just also want to name drop the the Mike Tyson series just came out on Hulu, which is not approved by Mike Tyson. Which, depending on which way you want to look at it, could mean that it is either better because it's not going to tell it from his perspective, or worse, because it's not going to tell it from his perspective. So you can look at it either way. I'm going to be watching that regardless. I haven't watched the Jeter series yet. I am very excited to, but one thing that I want to question from that series, I did see a clip where he claims that the gift basket thing is just internet rumor. And I just have to push back, because obviously Derek Jeter has a lot to gain by saying that didn't happen. There, there what is does a he great... have to gain from saying that didn't happen? I'm not going to lie. I don't have the highest opinion of Derek Jeter, but frankly, I thought the gift basket thing was a mark in his favor. Like, look, if you're going to be a guy that entertains many women, treat them well. Give them a gift basket. Well, of course, but I think it's the, the inherent you know puritanism in America that says if you are promiscuous, that's a bad thing. I think that's what he wanted to push back against. My headcanon is still that that absolutely happened, and there's Hundreds, if not thousands, of New York City women that have these wonderful <laughs> You know, may- maybe it did, maybe it didn't, but there was a great scene where they talked about this, and he mentioned a time he was in a, I think, it, I believe it was a deli, and this guy who was in line behind him, hey, hey, you know, I sent a girl a gift basket like you did after I hooked up with her, and Jeter called him a fucking idiot. <laughs> that, again, that's not stupid. That's a good thing to do. I am pro- Give a gift basket to your brief sexual encounters. <laughs> and things amicably, send it out on a good note. No, I, I agree. I, and this is why I think even if it didn't happen, Jeter should have owned it. Or Which, should have started doing it after the rumor. What would your gift basket be, though, if you had to give a gift basket? My gift basket... Well, so I, I think some lotion is like a nice thing to just include in anything. Nobody is ever going to be like, what the fuck is this lotion? I love having dry skin. That's a good thing to include. Maybe some fruits, but a fruit basket kind of seems like a little too on the nose. I'm not sure. Lotion would definitely be in it, though. I would go with a lush basket. As someone who loves lush themselves, right. like you can't go wrong with some nice bath stuff. I was going to say, include at least one bath bomb, because the first thing this person's doing when they get home is cleaning themselves. So you got to <laughs> go with the bath bomb. I think you or, need to go one sweet snack, one savory snack. I think you always want to make sure that you don't overdo it in either direction. One sweet, one savory. So like a well-done milk chocolate bar with maybe some toffee in it. And then look, I don't think anyone dislikes jerky. I don't think anyone dislikes a nice bag of jerky. And then just some flowers. Everyone loves being able to have a vase of flowers at home. Those are the four items I would build my gift basket around. I think it's a well-rounded basket. The only thing I'm going to push back on slightly, James, is you said the first thing they're going to do is clean themselves after they've had sex with Derek Jeter. I would say (laughs) the exact opposite. 
You're gonna ride that as long as possible. It's <laughs> like the, like I just shook Derek Jeter's <laughs> hand, and I'm never gonna wash his hand again. Take that times ten. If this person is, you know, presumably if they're sleeping with Derek Jeter, they are a Yankees fan. This is a big thing. As long as would be sanitary, I would try to, if I were this hypothetical woman or man, who knows what Derek Jeter got down with, with these fruit baskets he didn't give. If I were that person, and I'm a big fan of Derek Jeter, I am basking in the Jeter for as long as I can. Well, I'm glad that that's how you would kind of treasure that memory, Diaz. Uh, I want to go ahead and say we were building the ones for ourselves, and I'm a sweaty individual. Look, I know who I am as a person. Anyone that, that is a romantic liaison of mine probably would want to shower afterwards. But speaking of how you would treat memories, Diaz, I'd love to hear who is making memories for you. Fresh off of a four-game sweep, as of this recording, I'm going to recall one of my favorite memes in the Philadelphia sports history, which is a lush history of just memes. We're talking about the fightings! The fightings! Said, James, said, four-game winning streak. I was there Tuesday night when they walked it off. Nick Maton with a walk-off single to right field. Take care of business against the Reds, who are a poverty franchise. Now, tonight, we get Bryce Harper back. It, what is incredible is when Bryce suffered his broken broken hand. He got hit on broken hand, yeah. yeah. We were beginning to turn things around under Rob Thompson, but that seemed like that was like, well, there's the death blow. We're like five games out of the wild card right now. If we like can still be five games back by the time he returns, maybe we can go on a run. They did the opposite. They went on, I think they went 32 and 20 while Bryce was out. We have taken over the second spot in the NL wild card. And this is where I'm going to issue a public service announcement. The Philadelphia Phillies organization, there's any person there that has any kind of pool with anybody. If you're, if you're a hot dog vendor, but you like bumped into Middleton in the halls one time, I want you to pass this along. Why the fuck does Rob Thompson still have the interim tag? It is absurd that he still has the interim tag. He is so much better than Girardi, obviously, but like just the way the team has turned around, you can tell that the players actually enjoy coming to work and playing baseball, which I think is the most important thing a manager does. And who are you going to hire that is going to do better than him next year? I think there's nothing better you can do for that clubhouse as we gear up for this September run, which hopefully turns into October. Give Thompson the real tag. Take that pressure off him. Let the clubhouse know that you fully support this guy. And let's go from there. And let's see what happens. Because obviously, I mean, the NL, we're not going to win the East. The Braves and the Mets are both better teams. The Dodgers are obviously a ridiculous franchise. The Cardinals are very hot right now. I'm not saying we're going to make noise when we're in the playoffs. But let's at least have a solidified manager that we know can build on something for next year. If when we hopefully get to that wildcard scenario. So... Billy's making memories, Rob Thompson making memories, and I hope he gets to make many more going into the future. Big fan of Rob Thompson, 30-year Yankee. He was a part of that dynasty, too. Joined in 1990 and was there all the way until 2017. That was uh, he's getting the shot. Don't try and make me not like Rob Thompson and the current Phillies' success. Don't take this away from me. I enjoy what the Phillies <laughs> are doing right now. I want to say real quick... Uh, I think we should describe to the Cespedes barbecue terminology for a four-game sweep. That's a mop, baby. You break out the mops on game four. Uh, the Orioles have exactly one mop this year. They got it on the same day as the Seattle Mariners. It was a very good Cespedes barbecue day. Phillies have had four mops this year, which is the most we've had since, I think, 1953? That's a grand mop right there. 
That's a that's mop squared, baby. It's a it's a mop of mops. We're up, we're at like sixteen mops. Absolutely mopping up. Yes, I'm surprised you didn't talk about Alexander Isaac at all. Uh, well, you know, here we'll go. We'll go a brief Newcastle hour. First of all, incredible game at St. James Park last year, taking the champions for all that they're worth, going up 3-1. City did get the two quick goals to equalize, but even as it got late in the game, I thought Newcastle was still pushing for a goal. They weren't just settling for a draw against City. And uh, Alexander Isaac, incredible signing. I saw actually Xavier, you'll love this. I saw, have you ever seen the NBA videos where it's like, we're going to fade cut between Kobe highlights and Jordan highlights to show how similar their games are. I saw a clip somebody did with that and uh, Thierry Henry for Alexander Isaac. So it was, it was uncanny some of the controls he had. He had like a back heel control off of a volley, which like doesn't even make sense to me. But huge signing. Huge to get him in too because Callum Wilson. Here's what, if I were running the, the FIFA career mode, and I was able to turn injuries off, Callum Wilson would become a top three striker in the Premier League. Unfortunately, he gets injured, so he's going to be out with his hamstring for the next four to six weeks. But we're getting Isaac in just in time for that. So we'll throw him right to the Wolves. That was good. But so we're going to throw him right to the Wolves. We'll see how it goes. But I'm very excited to get a young, brilliant striker in. Fuck Hugo Ekatike for spurning us to go to PSG. He could have been the chosen one, but he's not going to be now. I hope uh, he gets a warm Newcastle hello in the 2025 PSG versus Newcastle Champions League game. Alexander Isaac also making memories for me. What about you, James? I'm going to go ahead and take it back to baseball. I haven't wanted to talk about the Orioles too much because I don't want to jinx it, but like... It's time to talk about the fact that since Adley Rutschman came up, the Orioles are 49 and 35. Like with Adley Rutschman this year, the Orioles are a 95 win team. So let me talk about the Orioles for a second. Because I'm upset with the Orioles. And I'm not upset with any of the players that I refer to as the Orioles. I love each and every one of them with the exception of like maybe two as much as I possibly could. And look, Rugnet Odor has had some moments and Robinson he punched Chirinos the guy in the face. It was great. Yeah, no, he punched Jose Bautista in the face like five years ago. And I'm not saying that wasn't great. That was five years ago. Toronto does still boo him for it, which is pretty great. And yeah, I mean, Robinson Torinos can play catcher. So there you go. That's Robinson Torinos. I love the Orioles. This I've already said, this is at worst third best year I've ever watched of the Orioles. It's beyond my wildest dreams that they are doing what they're doing now. Which is why it's all the more frustrating that the front office just doesn't seem to care at all that they lucked into a good baseball team all of a sudden. And I want to make it clear that they lucked into it. The median payroll in Major League Baseball this year, $115.1 million. If you ascribe that to, let's say, an 81 team, just to try and say, like, this is the most average team possible, they're paying about $1 million and four hundred twenty. nice, uh, thousand and sixty-nine. A little less than one and a half million for eighty-one wins. The Orioles this year with a forty-one million dollar payroll, forty-one, and I want to point out that is twenty-four million on the active roster. Almost half of what the Orioles are paying this year is just to people that aren't on the team anymore. With that, even with the forty-one million mark, they're paying about six hundred forty thousand for a win. And you could say, oh, look at that savvy front office 
saving money on all of this. Let me tell you something. If this wasn't a team where after eight innings, Jordan Lyles just became the ace. Jordan Lyles is probably the most important offseason signing we had this year. The guy that the last two years led the American League in home runs allowed is probably our most important signing. And honestly, at the end of the season, he's probably going to have been our best pitcher all season in terms of just volume able to be produced. Jordan Lyles is a hungry man. He comes out here, he eats innings. He had a buffet of seven last night. Like, don't get me wrong. This is not anti-Jordan Lyles. If Jordan Lyles is your biggest signing, and after eight innings of John Means before he has to get Tommy John surgery, Jordan Lyles becomes your ace, and you still somehow, some way, turn this into a winning ball club. The fact that you don't, at the trade line, try to start trade deadline, not trade line, that's not a thing. Anyway, the fact that you don't capitalize on that, instead, you send the emotional heart and soul of the team out to Houston, your ex-employers. I, I'm going to make it clear, you at this point is specifically Mike Elias, and then you send Jorge Lopez, the only all-star that your team had, out to Minnesota. The amount of disrespect that this front office has had for both the roster that it currently has constructed and the fans that come out to watch it in bigger numbers this year than in a half decade by far is just astounding. And I know that they've said, oh, this offseason, it's going to be a liftoff. We're going to start throwing all this money around. Julio Rodriguez got an extension today for a minimum of $200 million. I don't know where Adley Rushman's contract is. Where is Adley Rushman's contract, Michael Elias? Where's that? <laughs> and where is Gunnar Henderson? Why is Gunnar Henderson still in Norfolk? It's past August 23rd. I just want to be treated like a competent adult and not, not have this GM constantly saying, no, 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 we know better than you. I don't care if you know better than me. Please just give me the most entertaining version of my baseball team right now. Jordan Lyles is 13.69% of our payroll. Like nice, but also absurd. I love, I love that rant, James. And what, what it beckons me back to is like, I draw parallels between your Orioles fandom and my Sixers fandom. And the disdain for the front office certainly goes with it. What you said about Jordan Lyles made me think of Andre Iguodala. Like, I love Andre Iguodala. He's a great player. But if Andre Iguodala is your franchise cornerstone, you're not fucking winning shit. And it's the same thing with Jordan Lyles. Jordan Lyles is your best pitcher. Jordan Lyles, as your third pitcher, is good. So as your fourth pitcher, you're probably thrilled. But like you said, like when, when you have found money, there's there's two aspects, right? You can just sit on it. Or you can invest it and you can see how far we can take this found money. Why not see what you can do with the found money? You got a chance here to actually do something. Or we can Gunnar Henderson would be cheaper than Rugnet Odor right now. If next week the Orioles somehow made the wild card series, even if they called up Gunnar Henderson, the most infuriating thing is I guarantee you Rugnet Odor would be penciled into the starting lineup of that entire series. Rugnet Odor is flirting with batting below 200 this year. Sure, he's a bench presence. So is Robinson Chirinos. That means that the three players that the Orioles signed this offseason were Jordan Lyles, who understands that his job is to come in here and eat innings and nothing else. And then two different bench guys, Robinson Chirinos and Rudin Odor. You have this winter. You have this winter, Michael Elias, before I lose my absolute mind on you. That's who's making memories for me. Consider that a threat. So I can even draw it back to... On the flip side, 2017 Eagles. Eagles were not supposed to be good that year. 
it was like, okay, we missed the playoffs <clears> last year. If Carson gets us to the playoffs this year, that's the goal. And when we were nine and one or eight and one, whatever we were, how we didn't say, ah, well, let's just keep running this out and just see what happens. No, we traded for fucking Jay Ajayi and we went and won the fucking Super Bowl. Like, don't look the gift horse in the mouth kind of thing. When a good team shows up on your doorstep, nurture it and see how far it can go. We won a wild card game against Hugh Darvish once where Joe Saunders was our starting pitcher. We won that game five to one. There is no reason that you do not seize the opportunity just to make the playoff. I would say hockey is the only sport that is more just get your foot in the door than baseball. Yeah. But baseball is still just a just get your foot in the door sport. The Marlins two World Series, they were a wild card team. Speaking of getting your foot in the door, before we go too far with this, Xavier, why don't you go ahead and, and interject there as you lead us off this week into our, our main entree. Thanks, James. So I was inspired by the exploits of uh, new Jets cult hero Chris Streveler when I was coming up with what we should bring this week. If you don't know who Chris Streveler is, listeners, please go look up the picture of him with the Grey Cup in 2019. He is at Winnipeg's celebration. He is holding the Grey Cup while shirtless, draped in a fur coat, wearing a cowboy hat and gold chain, and smoking a cigar. It is one of the best pictures I've ever seen. Chris Streveler is now a training camp arm that the Jets brought in just to get some reps. And he ended up having a significant preseason playing time so far because of Zach Wilson's injury and the desire to not have Joe Flacco play at all during the preseason to avoid any injuries for him. Joe Flacco's elite. He doesn't need any more practice. I'm convinced we're going to lose to the Jets. I'm not going to lie. I think Joe Flacco's going to burn us. You know, if it happens, it happens. But I, I don't think you really have much to worry about. So Chris Strebler so far has led two come-from-behind victories in the preseason against the Eagles and the Falcons. I was at that Eagles game. That shit sucked. He has so far passed uh, for 200 yards and three touchdowns with eight rushes for 64 yards. And this has led to some you know fantastic content on Jets Twitter about the cult of Chris Strebler and how Chris Strebler, he, he should be our starter. He is the greatest. He is the second coming. And I've just, everyone's going to forget about him in maybe a month because despite his success, he's not going to make the Jets active roster. They're not going to carry four quarterbacks. Maybe there's like a one or 2% chance, but probably not. He'll probably stick around as a practice squad arm. So that got me thinking about the best preseason players who just were never able to translate that to the regular season. You had spoke about the Orioles earlier, and there was an Orioles guy that came up uh, in my research. His name was Jake Fox who in 2011 uh, oh my God, yes. had, had 10 home runs in spring training with OPS of 1.122, which is about the second most home runs anyone has ever hit in spring training as far back as the data goes. Dude, and it was it was the first Buck Showalter season. Like, I was high on Jake Fox, let me tell you. I can just interject very quickly to give a peek behind the curtain. Dick Fox is who I was going to talk about. I could not find anything interesting about this motherfucker. <laughs> other than, like, in one random march, he became the best baseball player of all time. Of yeah, all no, time. that's it. You know, it, it, it's still, I'm sure he enjoyed that one random march. But I'm not here to talk about Jake Fox. Today, 
I want to talk about the man that 538 called the Tom Brady of the preseason. I'm talking about Sage Rosenfels. Oh. I remember Sage Rosenfels. I was a uh, Washington football team legend. For about a year. Uh, they are who drafted him, but you know, we'll get to that in the future. Sage Rosenfels, born March 6, 1978 in Makokita, Iowa. A small town about 40 minutes from both the Illinois-Wisconsin borders. Rural farm area. His parents, Robert and Jamie, have been quick to point out there's a, a misconception here that they were quote-unquote hippies and that Sage grew up, you know, in a sort of a commune. But in reality, they just happened to have a plot of land where they had an orchard and an organic garden where they grew their own fruits and vegetables and did recycling, which apparently was not a normal thing in rural Iowa and led to some exaggerated thoughts about his upbringing. At Makokita Community High, very small high school, only about like 400 to 500 students. Rosenfels lettered in football, basketball, baseball, tennis, and track. Iowa had summer baseball, which is the only reason he was able to play all of these. So in the fall, he played football, basketball in the winter, spring tennis and track, and summer baseball. He's also a member of the National Honor Society because we love well-rounded guys. A scholar, if you will. Because this was a small school, Rosenfels can't just play one position. So for the football team, he was the quarterback, defensive back, kicker, and punter. As a senior, he was named first team All-District and All-Eastern Iowa by the Quad City Times in the Dubuque Telegraph Herald at quarterback and also second team Class 3A All-State defensive back by the Des Moines Register. So he was getting All-Area All-State awards on both offense and defense. He was also All-State at basketball and two-time All-State as a third baseman in baseball and placed the state championships in the 4 by 200 meter relay. I'm very glad to know that he was living in Quad Cities and also did occasionally uh, slam and welcome people to the jam. <laughs> I, um, I, what, what I wonder with his track career is, like, did he practice with the team, or was this just like a Randy Moss thing, where it was just like, Ah, I'll show up for the race because I'm faster than all of you. I don't need to learn this fancy bullshit about starting out of the blocks and getting your stride. I'm just going to run and I'll, I'll be good enough. So I, I looked into this and for his first couple of years in high school, he only did tennis in the spring. His senior year is when he decided to do track. As far as I can tell, you know, he went he went to whatever, all the meets and practice and everything, but it's just that one year of doing track that his team went to the state championships in track. So Rosenfels, he, he, he got offers to play college sports in baseball, basketball, and football. But he decides that he wants to, you know, stay in state, and he goes to Iowa State. After two years as a backup on some truly awful teams that went 1-10 and in 3-8, and Rosenfels became a starter uh, in 1999, his junior season. 11 games, he completes 54% of his passes for 1,700 yards, 10 touchdowns, and 11 interceptions, along with 225 rush yards and four TDs, as Iowa State went 4-7. and seven. Just as some context, Iowa State ended the 90s with zero winning seasons. In three seasons of two wins or less, including an, a, a winless season, they were really, really, really bad. 
So he just, like, when he decides to play a sport and is given that opportunity, he is enough of a rising tide that he brings the team to contention, essentially by himself, in the instances you've shown with football and track. Well, so in 2000, in his senior season, Iowa State, they're picked to finish fifth of six teams in the Big 12 North. They're predicted to win, like, three, four games, because that's the best they usually do. However... Rosenfels leads Iowa State to an 8-3 regular season record with wins over rival Iowa, Oklahoma State, Missouri, and Colorado. He only passes for eight touchdowns, but rushes for 10 more as part of a balanced attack. This season, Iowa State gets invited to participate in their first bowl game since 1978. In the Insight Bowl against Pitt, Rosenfels passes for 300 yards and two touchdowns, leading Iowa State to a 37-29 win. This was the first bowl win in Iowa State's 100-plus year history in their first nine-win season in 94 years. Iowa State fans stormed Chase Field because they had this game at the Diamondbacks ballpark, tore down the goalposts. Rosenfels gets named Offensive MVP. Just a force of nature. It's kind of wild to think about now because Iowa State has been good for the past seven, eight years. No, they were Temple levels bad for 40 years. They were really, really bad. Like, in like Temple, they were only good in the 70s before, before this. Rosenfels, after this season that came out of nowhere, goes to the senior ball, goes to the combine, shows pretty well for himself, and gets drafted in the fourth round at pick 109 overall by Washington. Never appears in a regular season game for them and gets traded to the Dolphins a year later for a seventh rounder. He's on the uh, the Josh Rosen path at this point. Uh, he spends Poor Josh years. Rosen. You know what? Josh Rosen, at least he was a first-round pick, so he got, his, he got some millions. But That's true. And there's always that great photo of him in a hot tub in his dorm room. So I'm sure he, he, he's got to enjoy life a little bit. So over four years with the Dolphins, Rosenfels appears in 13 games, two starts, one notable performance in 2005 when Gus Perrott uh, gets a concussion in the third quarter of a game against Buffalo. So Sage enters down 23-3. Xavier, I have to interject here. Was this the time that Gus Perrott concussed himself by headbutting the wall? Unfortunately not. Uh, that happened against the Giants in 1997. This was just a standard getting hit, play football concussion. Although I really wish that was the, it was the case. Would have been a great twist, but say la vie. So Sage comes in the third quarter, throws for 272 yards and three touchdowns and a little over one quarter as he leads the team on three fourth quarter scoring drives, winning the game 24 to 23. It was, this was the largest Dolphins comeback in 30 years. So before yeah. there was Fitz Magic, there was Sage advice. <laughs> <laughs> Rosenfels signs with Houston in 2006 and, you know, backs uh, up Derek Carr, or uh, David Carr, I should say, for a year. In 2007, he ends up starting five games, alternating with Matt Schaub. In 2007 and 2008, you know, they're both kind of doing a couple games. Uh, he starts five. I believe Schaub starts 11 2007, he throws for 1,600 yards, 15 touchdowns, 12 interceptions. That's his best year in, in the regular season ever. Eventually, he does lose the job to Matt Schaub, and 
he gets traded to the Minnesota Vikings in February of 2009. This is technically kind of his hometown team. People in Iowa are apparently Minnesota fans because they hate Illinois, so they're not Cubs fans, despite it being closer. Sorry, Bears fans? Bears fans, sorry. They're both the same animal, damn it. It's stupid. They should have changed. They should have done something they're else. They're the only city that has two teams that are the same species. Yes, they should, yeah, the reason being, it would be confusing for everyone else. So they should do something different about that. So Sage said to compete with Tavares Jackson for the starting role in Minnesota and outduels him. But then what happens? The Vikings signed Brett Favre. And that relegates Rosenfels to the clipboard role again. 2010, Brett Favre is like, ah, I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm gonna, I might go do uh, TV stuff. So again, he's competing with Tavares Jackson for the starting role. And once again, outduels him, going 30 for 47 for 400 yards and four TDs in the preseason. And then Favre comes back, <laughs> leading to Rosenfels being that traded was for the Brett Giants. Favre- I think was really the biggest punchline of all. When he came back for that second Minnesota season, come on, man. Well, he did. He he had a commercial. I forget who for, but it was like, he made fun of himself. It was like year 2035. And it's like a clearly like well-aged and great far. But like, well, you know, I'm going to talk with the family and we're going to look at it. uh, But I think this will be my last season. (laughs) So, Sage is upset because, you know, he came to Minnesota for a chance to start. So he gets traded to the Giants, where he ends up backing up Eli Manning. 2011, he plays in one preseason game, completes 13 of 19 passes for 129 yards while dealing with strep throat. Unfortunately, he ends up developing a blood infection from the strep throat and misses the rest of the preseason before being cut with an injury settlement because he developed bacteremia. Preseason gives and it takes away. <laughs> do they do they give him a consolation ring after the season? Nope. Damn. That's gotta suck if strep throat takes away your Super Bowl ring. Not only strep throat, strep throat plus bacterial blood infection because of playing while getting strep throat. What do you think is worse, the infection or not getting a Super Bowl as a backup because of the infection? You know what? Probably the ring because he did recover from the infection. Like, right? if it was something, right? if it was something where like he never recovers, then obviously that. But the fact that it cost him a ring, I think that would be the, the bigger issue. You know, after this, he he signs with the, with the Dolphins again, spends a couple months there, doesn't appear in any games, and then goes back to Minnesota where he plays the 2012 preseason, playing 17 of 25 passes for 225 yards and two TDs for being waived and retiring. Over his regular season career, Rosenfels appeared in 43 games, uh, starting 12, through 562 total passes with a 62% completion percentage, 4,000 yards, 30 TDs, and 29 interceptions for an 81.2 passer rating. The regular season is not the important thing when it comes to Sage Rosenfels. As a career backup slash third stringer, he ended up essentially as much preseason playing time as he had regular season snaps. Over 11 different preseasons, Rosenfels had 549 attempts, 30 touchdowns to only five interceptions, a pass rating of 93.6, and this is a stat that 538 had, which was QBR, yards above replacement value. 
His uh, QBR yards above placement was 875.3. For context here, of all quarterbacks since 2000, with fewer than 1,000 regular season attempts, this way it kind of filters out long-term NFL quarterbacks who have you know significant playing time and have just appeared in some preseason games over the years. His 875.3 was over 100 more than the next closest passer, Luke McCown. And only two players were even within 300 points of him. Famous uh, bag getter slash backup QB Chase Daniel is fourth at 572.8, which is closer to falling out of the top 20 altogether than it is to Rosenfels. His preseason performances are what helped him stay in the league for so long. So in 2002, he had a pass rating of 103.6 in the preseason, which is what caught the eye of the Dolphins initially leading to their trade for him from Washington. One of these games that he excelled in was the 2002 American Bowl, which was a preseason game between Washington and San Francisco in Osaka, Japan. Rosenfeld started and threw for three touchdowns in a 38-7 romp. I forgot they used to do that preseason game. And what I yeah. loved about it is this was still, like, obvious in the summer, right? This would be prime. I'm almost about to have to go back to school, but for now I don't need to have a normal sleep schedule. This would come on at, like, 3 a.m. our time, and I'd be like, well, shit, I guess I'm watching football till the sun rises now. Yeah, they, they should do the American Bowl again. They haven't done it since 2005, but they had games in London, Tokyo, Montreal, Berlin, Barcelona, Mexico, Canada, Dublin. But this game in Osaka, Washington demolishes the Niners, and it's thanks to Sage Rosenfels. He later said, quote, 100% my preseason's helped me get a chance. I thankfully played well in the preseason under Steve Spurrier, and that got me another job. Playing well in the preseason literally got me traded to a team that needed a third-string quarterback. From 2002 through 2012, Rosenfels posted a passer rating of at least 99.2 in seven of his 11 preseasons. He used the preseason to climb the depth chart from third string in Miami to number two, and then eventually the chance to start over those four seasons. But there's a chance I actually got to start because of my preseason action. I feel like I worked my way up the ladder and got to a point where I'd earned the ability to start. All thanks to the preseason. And, you know, he, he understands the preseason is a different beast. You know, he said there's less complex defenses, but it's not a walk in the park. When you're standing in the pocket in the fourth quarter of a preseason game, you might have a guy who's six foot five, two sixty five, sacking you. That feels the same as Dwight Freeney sacking you. It's still chaos in the pocket. It's still an extremely violent game. And I think that's a really good quote. You're getting crushed by defensive end. It's going to hurt no matter who it is, whether it's a seventh rounder who's trying to get a chance in the practice squad or it's an all pro. It's still going to hurt. We know now the NFL is slowly phasing out preseason games. They've cut them to three, and some teams like the Rams won't play any starters at all during these games. Uh, but Rosenfels is a preseason defender. Preseason games, he says, are the time that you add to your resume for all 32 teams. They'll tell you early on, you don't really play for one team, you play for 32. What you put on film there is what the other teams think of you, because they don't see all the practice days in the offseason. I always felt like I was auditioning to make the NFL every single year for 12 years. And if anyone should know, it's a guy who, you know, turned these strong preseasons into a 10-plus year career. I like that mentality. I like that he's got that hunger in him. Somebody's you know, he, looking somewhere. He, he called himself, you know, a gamer who does better, like, in-game than in practice. So very, very strongly believes that the strong preseason games is what allowed him to, you know, maintain a career and maintain 
getting jobs across the league because if there were no games, maybe he just gets cut by Washington after a year or two and that and that's it. He goes back to Iowa. Since he's retired, he's been very active. He was a color analyst for Iowa State games. He was a Vikings beat writer for The Athletic. You can see his byline on The Athletic. He stopped in, I think, 2019, uh, was doing it for a while. Been an NFL analyst. And he even tried being a stand-up comedian. Uh, I watched the video of it. Uh, uh, Is he any it, good? Some, it was all right. Uh, not, okay. But it's funny, you know, when asked about why he wanted to do comedy... He said that being a backup QB was a be seen but not heard mentality. So this was a chance to show his personality and be heard a bit. Sure, why not, Sage? He was doing like improv stuff too, with like a like a with like a little improv. Good, thing. good. Find a hobby. Yeah, he, be he a seems, more well-rounded person. He seems like a like a fun guy and not an asshole. You know, knock on wood. But you know, he's been outspoken about the benefits of NIL and is part of a collective to help. Iowa State student-athletes, active on Twitter, and unlike maybe some people that we have talked about who played for the Vikings before, he seems to be on a good side of some things that, that, that have happened, calling out some bullshit when it needs to be called out. But uh, you know, one last thing I want to talk about was I saw like one really interesting fun fact uh, about his time with the Texans. Gary Kubiak cursed him out for taking a timeout once. So they had a meeting where he stripped told Kubiak, I'm doing the best I can, and you yelling at me won't make me a better player. So just stop it. Like, just, just, stop, just stop cursing at me. It's not going to do anything. And Kubiak was like, you know what? Okay. I, I won't yell at you from the sideline. <laughs> and I like the idea of just being like, who is this helping? Oh, that's... Quiet. <laughs> we, we need more emotional maturity in the NFL. More than anywhere else. In professional sports, the NFL requires a little bit more professional maturity. Also, apparently, he walked in on Cal McNair playing video games on the floor of his office when he was trying to when he was trying to meet with the CEO of the Texans. So he just walks in, and Cal McNair just sitting on the floor playing video games on a big screen TV. And I think that's also very funny. It's a relatable king. <laughs> so that is Sage Rosenfels, the Tom Brady of the preseason guy who turned preseason success into. Over a decade in the NFL, and I, I, I love that. I also enjoy that because, like, Tom Brady at this point has essentially played, you know, if a full, if not more, season of postseason football. And with, what, 500-something pass attempts, that's during his lifetime about probably an average season's worth of volume, maybe a little bit on the low side. But you've got this full season of postseason excellence, this full season of preseason excellence, excellent contrast. I do want to say for the record, Tom Brady has three full regular seasons of playoff experience. He's 35. Fucking disgusting. Retire, you stupid whore. We hate it. We hate it. I Tom Brady enjoy- never allowed to be a guy. Well, I do enjoy, though, that this offseason he's kind of taking the approach of like, hey, I'm Tom fucking Brady, and I'm going to spend time with my kids, and I'm going to do what I want, and you're going to let me because I'm Tom fucking Brady. No, he's on the mass Singer. To be determined. He denied it, but... Yeah, because you have to sign an NDA for that stuff. I have to deny anything about Jeopardy. He was on The Masked Singer. It's too good to to not be true. There is confirmation that he was guest as The Masked Singer at least once. So We'll find out about this one day. If, if, if it happened, we will learn about it. We will know. We will. But today we've learned a lot about Sage Rosenfeld, and I appreciate that, Xavier. That was great. He was, that was absolutely fantastic. I could not have possibly told you that, but like, 
the Ravens played several of those, like they played those Vikings teams, they played those Texans teams. And I had no idea that this like excellent guy was just hanging around on the sidelines. That's great. I, I thank you, buddy. And you know, the Ravens are a team that takes the preseason very seriously, you know, as, goddamn as right buddy, you do. The, the 22 straight preseason wins. To our detriment, just ask Travis Jones, three to five week recovery period expectation. We care about the preseason too much. <laughs> Always remember the 0-16 Lions did go 4-0 in preseason. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking of people that take the preseason seriously, I want to set the stage for my guy. I want to take us back to July 14th, 2006. The number one song in the country right now is Promiscuous by Nelly Furtado. I love that song. So good. In February of this year, Stephen Bradbury won his gold medal in short track speed skating. In March, Twitter launched. Later in August, after this, Pluto will be declared no longer a planet. And two days before July 14th, 2006, Israel actually invaded Lebanon, initiating the 34-day-long military conflict known as the 2006 Lebanon War. But today, today, we are in Las Vegas, and we are crowning the first-ever Summer League MVP. And that is a guy by the name of Randy Foy. Yeah! Randy Foy! You are appealing to the Philadelphian and me, James. Indeed, I am. Now, we are going to stray a little bit away from Philadelphia to begin. We are going to go over the river to Newark, New Jersey. We are going to go back in time even further. September 24th, 1983, just in time for a young Randy Foy to watch the 1983 Orioles win the World Series. Uh, He is born on that day, and he's born with a particular medical condition called Cetus Inversus. Have either of you ever heard of this before? Sounds uh, like some things are the opposite of what they're supposed to be. That is exactly it. Some of his organs are mirrored. In fact, luckily for Randy Foy, almost all of his organs are mirrored. Turns out, if any of them hadn't been, he probably would not have been able to do anything physical in his life. But he had, like, such a, I guess, extreme case of Cetus Inversus, where everything was swapped sufficiently, that he was able to operate as a pretty normal person. Well, that that harkens me back to, what, it was Mr. Burns, right, in Simpsons? Yes. Yes, uh, three stooges syndrome is what you're referring to. (laughs) Everything just cancels each other out and like you're good. All in perfect. So what you're saying is I'm invincible. Indestructible. 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 Well, actually, no. The uh, the slightest breeze could indestructible. (laughs) This is an auspicious start for Randy Foy, and it does not get much better. He has a pretty hard scrabble life growing up. He is orphaned pretty early. And so he's raised by a number of family members and on a single block, three different houses between 7th Avenue and 3rd Street in Newark, New Jersey. He's in the Roseville neighborhood. So he lives all around on this block and all the time after school goes to the Alma Flag School nearby, which is a bunch of basketball courts and a gym. He's just honing his craft and eventually gets good enough to attend Eastside High School, where he is one of the stars on their basketball team, having come up in this Newark scene. He is noticed by pseudo-local Jay Wright. Jay Wright has just recently become the coach for Villanova, came over from Hofstra in 2001, had a decent first season after replacing their fine coach, Steve Lapis. So he finishes 1913 that season before he comes and now recruits Randy Foy. The next year, Randy Foy's freshman year, is actually Jay Wright's single worst season in Villanova history. Does finish with a losing record, is pretty atrocious. Randy Foy is a 
decent freshman season. 10.3 points, 3.5 rebounds, 2.9 assists. He is solidly in the rotation, even here as a freshman year. And the good news is, from this point on, they are only going up. That is a 15 and 16 year that they have there. The next year, Nova is 18 and 17. Randy Foy goes 13.5 points, 4.7 rebounds, 3.6 assists. He's third on the team. First on the team is another sophomore. It's not Ray Allen, no friends. It's Allen Ray. <laughs> so what I will always remember of Allen Ray, he was playing in the biggest tournament, I want to say his senior year. It is mm-hmm. broken bones notwithstanding, the most gruesome injury I've ever seen. The guy went to steal the ball and missed the ball, but got under his eye socket and got in behind it, and it like it fully popped out. Ew. Xavier and I are having visceral reactions right now, folks, on camera. The retina was fully attached. He fully recovered. But, like, it was one of those, like, coming from a sports broadcasting background, it's always a debate of, like, do you show the bad injury? And what the consensus is finally settled on is you show it once and then never again. And I saw his eyeball fully out of his socket once, and I will never see it again because it is burned into my fucking memory how haunting that was well gladly that does not grace my mind i didn't have that on the list for good old alan ray but the next season i do have some good news for both alan ray and our boy randy foy in the 0405 season they're now going to go 24 and 8 over at villanova this is when jay wright really starts to kind of pick up in what will be his incredibly successful run at Villanova. This is the beginning of that. And Randy Foy is going to go 15.5 points, 7.2 rebounds, 3.1 assists. He is the second highest scorer now on the team, still behind Alan Ray. And now they also do have a young Kyle Lowry on the team, which means the next year, 05-06, the climax of Randy Foy's college career, by all means. They go 28-5 and in the regular season. They have a phenomenal contest with UConn down the stretch. They do finish second in the Big East. But it's a really good contest between the two in the standings. Uh, Foy leads the way this time in scoring 20.5 points, 5.8 rebounds, 3.0 assists. They make their second consecutive run to the tournament. The year before, they lost in their third game to eventual champion UNC. The whole time, Randy Foy had been the leading scorer on the team in the tournament. He is again the leading scorer in the March Madness tournament this year for them. As they get all the way to the Elite Eight before they again lose to the eventual champions, Florida this time. But two years in a row, they lose to the team that goes on to win the championship. In that final game, Randy Foy scores 25. That is the high for all scorers in the game. Uh, the joke so of Noah Al Horford, Florida Gators? Uh-huh. That is absolutely the yeah, joke of Noah Florida that was Gators. A good team. Yeah, Joe Kim Noah will win player of the year for that tournament. So, he's had a great senior season. Caps it off by being named Big East Player of the Year. He beats out Rudy Gay and Alan Ray from his own team. So, he's the Big East Player of the Year, has that phenomenal run in the tournament, and he is ready to enter the 2006 NBA draft. In the year before this, the Trailblazers finished with the worst record. They ended up dropping to the fourth overall pick, which is gutting. The Toronto Raptors leapt up, and then the Knicks actually got number two. Unfortunately, they had traded the rights to it to the Chicago Bulls previously. Yep. Yep, for Eddie Curry. Don't don't nope. want to talk about that. That's right. don't worry. We're moving right past it. Do, do yes. you, you have the draft order? Because I'm like I'm trying to. Think we're, oh, now. we're going to talk about the draft a little bit. I I know Bargnani went one. Yes, Toronto takes Andrea Bargnani. It is is it the second worst first overall pick of all time? Because Anthony Bennett's the worst. But guess what? The Knicks traded a first round pick for Andrea Bargnani after he sucked, which means the first and second picks of that draft they traded for after they sucked. 
Yeah. And the second one hurts. The second one hurts a little bit because with the second one, initially what happens is Chicago takes LaMarcus Aldridge coming out of the University of Texas. Just a little bit later, I think it finally kind of snaps in Portland's mind, the fact that they drop from best possible odds to the fourth overall pick. And so they start making some trades. Portland's going to go crazy tonight. After making their fourth overall pick to take Tyus Thomas, they trade him along with Victor Krapapa and a second rounder to Chicago to get LaMarcus Aldridge. Please, did you, are you going to tell me I mispronounced it? No, you didn't mispronounce anything, but I have a Tyrus Thomas story. So when I had the free season tickets for the Sixers, we were seated right by the opposing bench. Obviously, we took it upon ourselves to heckle these people as much as possible. And one game, they were playing the Bulls, and a disappointing draft bust, Tyrus Thomas, is seated on the bench. And I had made it my goal to spend the entire game just yelling at him about how much of a bust he was and, you know, maybe go back to LSU. In the fourth quarter, he got up from the bench and stared directly at me and started to storm at me before a veteran on the end of the bench caught him. And I was just, yeah, Tyrus, beat up a fan. That's going to save your career. That would be a great move for you. My personal greatest moment in heckling. And Tyrus, if you're listening, it was all just fun, man. It's all sports. I'm sorry. I, I didn't say anything personal. I just said you were not good at basketball. Also, apologies to our listeners. 2007 pick was the one that became Joe Kim Noah. So the 2006 pick that was LaMarcus Aldridge, we did not trade for. But it does mean that the Knicks did trade Joe Kim Noah and LaMarcus Aldridge plus more for Eddie Curry. Bad deal. It was a bad deal on your part. And it's going to continue to burn you because you're going to see some more action happening. At this point, Portland has thrown everything into chaos. We go a little bit further. With the sixth pick, Minnesota is initially going to take Brandon Roy, the evil mirror universe counterpart of Randy Foy. The next pick, Boston, takes Randy Foy immediately after Brandon Roy. And then a little bit later, Portland and Boston and Minnesota all decide to just get fucking wild with it. Portland's going to start off by trading Sebastian Telfair Theo Ratliff in a 2008 second rounder for Rafe LaFriends, Dan Dickow, and Randy Foy. So now Portland has Randy Foy. Just minutes after he is you know, drafted by Boston, he's been sent to the Trailblazers. And then Portland again makes another trade. Portland is not satisfied. This time, it is just a straight-up one-for-one swap with the Minnesota Timberwolves. And it is Randy Foy for... His mirror universe counterpart, Brandon Roy, picked in consecutive picks, traded one for one for one another. And here we are now ending this draft. Randy Foy's a Minnesota Timberwolf. That is absurd. They couldn't even get like, a, like, hey, throw like a top 50 protected second rounder on top. You're like, nah, you can get a do over if you want, but that's all we'll give <laughs> Minnesota's got him. He, he moves past this. He moves past being traded twice during draft night. And he focuses on the upcoming Summer League. Now, this is still very early for the Summer League. In fact, it's not even the NBA Summer League at this point. And when we say Summer League, we probably nowadays immediately think of the Las Vegas-based competition. We'll acknowledge that is not the first Summer League. The earliest one that's got like any kind of modern continuance is early 80s pro-am competitions that would take place in Utah called the Rocky Mountain Review later on. Initially, it's just kind of like unofficial competitions, but the Rocky Mountain Review there in Utah. The first one that eventually becomes affiliated with the NBA uh, is Orlando, running from 2002 to 2017. But even that one 
It runs until 2017 because at that point, Las Vegas has taken over. Las Vegas is the center of NBA Summer League World. And it's the brainchild of a guy named Warren Legary. Now, he is the head of the self-named WGL management company. And what he started out as was just a sports agent for European stars. His big one was Drazen Petrovic. And as these guys start migrating over to the NBA, he also comes. And then he does the curious thing of realizing that a more lucrative way to get paid is to actually be an agent for coaches once you're established. And so he starts taking on clients like George Carl, Rick Carlisle, Mike Dunleavy. So this guy is just a coach agent that has this very good relationship with the NBA, and he is dead set on getting some kind of NBA thing into Las Vegas. He's convinced that Las Vegas is the next market that David Stern needs to tap. The problem that David Stern has for many years is the casinos in Las Vegas. They just can't have that. But you get into the late 90s, the early 2000s, people's stances on betting have softened, and Legary gets a chance to like corner David Stern in an elevator this one time and just sell him on doing the summer league in Las Vegas. So in 2004, David Stern finally relents. They have the first ever summer league in Las Vegas. It's still not called the NBA Summer League at this point. It's just a summer league because they don't want to make it seem like it's any more important than the ones still going on in Orlando and in Utah at this point. At first year, six teams compete and about 8,000 fans attend each game. Just as we get into 2006, the year where we're going to have our boy Randy Foy entering the Summer League, they've got 16 teams now competing, and they're going to average 20,000 fans per game. So they've nearly tripled attendance in two years. They also get a major sponsorship. They are now sponsored by Toshiba, which is about the most 2006 sponsor I can possibly think of. They've got 16 teams. Each team's going to play five games. It's just like a round-robin competition. The first game on Minnesota's schedule is against the Sacramento Kings. It's going to be a 90-83 to loss, but our boy Randy Foy, he is the highest scorer in the game. 23 points, four boards, leads all players. The next game, he outduels Amari Stoudemire in a 91-83 to win over the Phoenix Suns. Randy Foy puts up 30 points on Amari Stoudemire as his primary defender. Why was Amari the primary defender on him? Because they were like the two guys that were really getting tried out you know by what, the that's team. That's fair. That's fair. They were like <laughs> the two legitimate prospects in this competition. <laughs> right. I mean, that's it. Summer League is similar to like pickup ball, where it's like, look, the best player on either team, you might have a 5 9 versus 6 6, but they're going to fucking guard each other. It's just the way it goes. So he, he hangs 30 on him at that point. Again, leading score. And the next game's going to hurt a little bit. They play Portland, and he has to play LaMarcus Aldridge and Brandon Roy, his Mirror Universe counterpart. He does lead all players with 24 points in the game. Unfortunately, it is a 78-65 to win for the Portland Trailblazers. It is the biggest loss that they suffered during this summer league. The next game, Randy Foy, for the fourth consecutive game, is going to lead all players with 28. They beat Dallas 86-76, to and then for a fifth and final time, Randy Foy comes into the Summer League, he gets onto that court, and he leads every single player on that court in points. Now, it's only 19. We might be disappointed. It's the only time he hasn't broken 20. He decides to say, if I'm going to do that, I'm also going to lead the Timberwolves in assists and rebounds with five of <laughs> 
I'm going to lead the team in all three of those categories. I'm going to lead all players in Summer League this year with 24.8 points, 53% shooting. I'm going to be named the first ever Summer League MVP. His name is Randy Foy. Hear him roar. (laughs) Not surprised to see a, a Villanova man step right into that setting. Now, as implied by the very category that we are discussing this week, this is pretty much the high point of Randy Foy's career. Randy Foy, in that last season at Villanova, because of injuries, they'd actually run a four-guard offense pretty much all the time. And he still managed to be the leading scorer, 20 and a half, very productive player, got that Big East Player of the Year. Comes to Minnesota, Minnesota has six guards in their rotation this year. Horribly imbalanced roster, still all based around Kevin Garnett at this point, but essentially wasting another Kevin Garnett season. Even with all that, like even if it was just six guards, they had to try and fight out. The biggest free agent of the year was Detroit's recent champion, Mike James, that came in. It was going to basically soak up any of the point guard minutes that new acquisition Randy Foy from the draft might hope to get. So early in the rookie season, he is starving for minutes coming off the bench. Then halfway through the year, fun fact, the Timberwolves aren't very good. <laughs> so they fire head coach at the time, Dwayne Casey. And that second half, Randy Foy starts getting incorporated a little bit more coming off the bench, still barely starting until the very, very end of the season. But he's gotten up to 22 minutes a game by the end of the season. He's named the all-Ricky first team, along with three-way tie for the final spot, LaMarcus Aldridge, Marcus Williams, and Jorge Garbosa. Then it was Bargnani, Rudy Gay, Randy Foy, and Rookie of the Year, Evil Mirror Universe counterpart, Brandon Roy. Once again, the two of them are tangled up. But it's been a promising first year for Randy Foy. We can be pretty happy with this. The thing about Randy Foy is that his per 36 for this season are pretty much identical to his per 36 for his career. And that's not because he has a peak and then a valley later. What he does his rookie season is what he does for the rest of his career. The next two years, he soaks up a little bit more. He gets to get up into the teens for scoring for the only time ever. That is because Kevin Garnett is traded after that rookie season. And the Timberwolves, after being bad, get even worse somehow. So he plays two more seasons in Minnesota. He's traded to Washington. Here's a fun thing that happens to him in Washington. In 2010, it's the middle of another just unremarkable stint with the Wiz, but he does receive a notable fine. Do either of you guys have any guesses as to what this fine is related to? Marijuana. Good guess. Xavier? Don't know. So, this is the year that Gilbert Arenas brings a gun to the locker room. And a couple days later... I thought Crittenden was the only accomplice. I didn't realize Randy Foy was in on this. Well, no, here's what happens. A couple days later, this isn't even related to the day that the gun comes in. They're just on the court. Gilbert Arenas is like on the sideline and a couple players just give him finger guns and the referees decide that that deserves a $10,000 fine for each of the players that is engaged because (laughs) of recent events. That's crazy. I do vaguely remember this now. That's hilarious. So he has that stint in D.C., Signs with the Clippers the next year. He's backing up. He kind of gets moved to the two from the one at this point. He's still backing up Chris Paul a little bit. Mostly he's backing up J.J. Redick. This is early Lob City. Gets his first taste of the playoffs. And then immediately after they get swept by the Spurs in the second round, he moves on and he goes to Utah instead. Maybe, you know, he thought this other city that used to have Summer League, this is where I'll kind of come around. And he has three decent seasons, including his final one, where he sets the then-franchise record for threes. Now, he only takes 2.2 threes a game, 
So this is more a product of the fact that no one had shot more than when he eventually shoots 184 threes in a single <laughs> season. That's not even in the top 10 in Utah Jazz history at this point. But at the time, Randy Foy has the record for most threes in a Utah Jazz season. Even though he does that, the next year, he's traded straight to the other Rocky Mountain team. Because, you know what, maybe the Rocky Mountain Review it was just more of a sense of mind than a specific place. He goes to Denver. He is part of the signing trade, Diaz. This is for you. That sends Andre Iguodala to Golden State. He is part of the three-team trade. And... Denver, Denver, Denver. Yeah. Six was traded Iguodala to Denver. Oh, I'm sorry. And then after that, he was traded to Golden yeah. State. With all of that, he gets to hit his first ever game-winning shot in Denver. That's kind of the highlight of his couple years here. On February 3rd, 2014, gets his first ever game-winning shot against his former team, the Clippers. So he has a little bit of, uh, not really vengeance. He left them as a free agent, but does get that. And then after this, is immediately traded to the Oklahoma City Thunder. This is just in time for the Oklahoma City Thunder to go to the Western Conference Finals, go up 3-1, and then lose to the Golden State Warriors. 3-1, the least safe series lead in history that year. What I will say for Randy Foy, though, is I played with that Thunder team a lot on NBA 2K. (laughs) I put Randy Foy in the starting lineup because... As you alluded, James, the three-point proficiency, I'm like, okay, Russell Westbrook, collapse the the paint, draw everybody in, kick it out to Randy Foy, boom, money from three. If I could have gotten the ear of Billy Donovan, maybe some things would have gone differently that year. Maybe KD's still in OKC. Maybe they win a title, and KD and Russell Westbrook become the most romantic pair in NBA history, never leaving each other's side. If only Billy Donovan would have picked up my phone call on my NBA 2K advice. <laughs> I mean, dare I say, once again, an uh, amazing explanation of the butter guy effect. But we do unfortunately have that outcome in OKC. And that's the end of the contract for Randy Foy. So he goes on, he makes one final free agent signing in Brooklyn. The highlight of his time in Brooklyn, I'll go ahead and tell you. You know, he decides, I got to get away from this KD guy if he's going to Golden State. So let me go to Brooklyn where I'll be as far away from KD as possible. And he goes to New Jersey to get his house. And he buys it from Bruce Springsteen. Bruce's huh. old house. Randy Ford he he there. buys his mansion from Bruce Springsteen in New Jersey when he moves to Brooklyn. Or moves to the Brooklyn Nets. And I fucking love that. Listen, Randy Foy's all over the place. I guess we can only say he was born to run. Not bad at all. And if I go <laughs> any further, we'll be talking about Bruce Springsteen for the next 20 minutes. <laughs> so we'll leave on that. Um, Randy Foy, he's not... The boss, but he's a boss, and he does have that last season there in Brooklyn. That ends up being the end for him. Retires after 11 years, 33 years old. I want to point out, Randy Foy outlasts Brandon Roy. Now, is that because Brandon Roy had, like, debilitating knee injuries? Sure, I'm not trying to necessarily revel in that, but if we're talking about who won between Mirror Universe counterparts, Randy Foy was still kicking at the end there because Brandon Roy couldn't kick with his very bad knees. The good thing with Brandon Roy, I will always remember, it's one of my favorite individual early rounds. How many more qualifiers can I put on? I'll leave it at that. The year that the Mavs went on to win the NBA Finals, there was a game four. I think it was the first round. Mavericks Blazers, 2-1, Mavericks are up. Blazers at home fighting for their lives. And Brandon Roy turned back the clock and went off in the fourth quarter. I think he scored like 20 points in the fourth quarter. And had a very emotional press conference after, like, I will always remember that. So, as we're remembering different guys, Brandon Roy is not Randy Foy, but he's also a guy worthy of being remembered. 
He is indeed. But I would argue I think Randy Foy, more important to remember, because that 2006 Summer League, that is what leads the NBA the next year to add its licensing. 2007 on, it is the NBA Summer League in Las Vegas. It's the first one to get that full title. Orlando gets the NBA affiliation later on to be official, but Orlando, again, goes out of business because the Las Vegas one is just such a hit. Part of that is because eventually it goes to that tournament style that people genuinely enjoy watching now. It's led to some amazing moments. Sure, I'll go ahead and mention the 2014 Spurs Summer League win. Why not? It's got the first ever coaching win for Becky Hammond. I'm sorry. 2022 WNBA Coach of the Year, Becky Hammond. Thank you very much. There's also been... In the history of NBA Summer League MVPs, a really strong lineage. Like, we got a three-year run at one point of John Wall, Blake Griffin, and Damian Lillard. Like, did Randy Foy pan out? Not necessarily, but this Summer League became a huge showcase. Now, admittedly, sometimes it still has some misfires. In fact, Damian Lillard tied with a guy named Josh Selby for NBA Summer League as well. Yeah, Kansas, right? Josh Selby? Mm -hmm. So, still not perfect. But it, it really took off because of that 2006 performance led by the best player by far in the NBA Summer League that year, our boy Randy Foy. Randy Foy is largely out of basketball now. Once he like kind of finished his career, started kind of talking about just situs and versus a lot. He's appeared in a number of documentaries talking about that condition and, and what it all means. He also briefly got into podcasting, my friends. He had a podcast called Outside Shot with Randy Foy, where he likes to talk with, as he puts it, underdogs. There are seven and a half episodes. These were all released in 2017 and 2018. (laughs) He's got mostly interviews with people he considers underdogs, like his former teammate Will Sheridan, who came out to him during college as gay and later being a professional basketball player who was gay. I remember Will Sheridan. Yeah. And, um, Talks with Nova teammates, Kyle Lowry, and not teammate, but Jay Wright. Talked with Jeremy Lin. Had one episode where he talked with the mayor of Prospect Park, New Jersey, Mohamed Kairula, who is a Syrian-American. So that was kind of the angle on that one. But the very first episode is the last thing that I really want to touch on for Randy Foy. In the first episode, he talks about his mom, Regina Foy. I mentioned he was orphaned very early on. His mom was like 20, I think. When she had him, she's incredibly young. She just kind of, after his kindergarten year, disappeared. And he would ask people all the time, like, hey, what happened? And they'd be evasive or say that they did not know. And so this just kind of like became something that he buried deep down and lived with his whole life. His dad, I will real quick say, his dad was shot in gun violence in the streets of Newark, New Jersey. His dad, he knew, was dead. And he assumed at this point his mom was dead or kidnapped or something. Didn't even really like deal with it until his wedding when he kind of like talked to his, his new wife, just broke down thinking about this. And so he realized, you know what? Hey, I got money now. I can hire a private investigator. Let's find out what the fuck happened. So he does that. That doesn't actually turn anything up. But when he goes to Brooklyn, gets his physical, and his physicals were always very important when he went to new teams because, again, all of his organs are flipped. So he goes and gets his physical. And he's talking to his doctor, just like telling the doctor the story. And the doctor calls him a couple days later. It's like, hey, there's a 99% chance that I'm completely fucking wrong. And there's a 1% chance that your story made me think of a Jane Doe we have in the morgue that I think might be your mom. Do you want to do a DNA test? And so he gets his DNA, he gets his daughter's DNA, and they check it against us. And it turns out that Jane Doe was his mother, Regina Foy. Based on like the case files, it turns out that she passed away of an overdose very shortly after the last time that he saw her. 
he was able to take her remains and cremate her, bury her. They have somewhere now to like go and memorialize. And he's, this is incredibly meaningful to him when you hear him talk about it on the podcast, just the fact that he has somewhere where he can go in and have that connection to his mom. And, you know, that's, that's a pretty good first episode for a podcast. And he did manage another six and a half, but has been pretty quiet in the world since then until I brought him back here today. And if we're going to talk about guys that are early preseason mirages, where better to look for a mirage than out in the desert of Vegas, where you've got a true guy of summer, Randy Foy. That is my guy this week. I like that a lot. I'm a big fan of Randy Foy. Also gives us a chance to think back about how the Minnesota Timberwolves traded Randy Foy, decided to get some new point guards, and then in the subsequent draft, drafted Ricky Rubio and Johnny Flynn, and not Steph Curry. Johnny Flynn, ARTG nominee. No, that was great. You did get me thinking, though, James. I was going to go through more of the Summer League MVPs, but you, you touched on the, on the big ones. But one thing I do notice looking at this list, there are two schools that have multiple Summer League MVPs. One of them is Villanova. Would either of you like to guess who the other Villanova Summer League MVP is? Did Kyle Anderson go to Nova? He did not. To give you a year, this is 2018, and it is the Lakers. Josh Hart? Josh Hart. There we go, baby! Josh Hart. Yeah, that was when they had back-to-back ones because they had Lonzo Ball the year before that. He did, yeah. So Lonzo Ball was 17. And it's funny that you said UCLA, James, because the other school to have multiple Summer League MVPs is UCLA with Kyle Anderson and Lonzo Ball. Kyle Anderson went to UCLA. Okay, slow-mo Kyle Anderson. I never knew that either. I always, like, there was another Anderson that I guess played at Virginia. And I always thought, I always thought Kyle Anderson was a Virginia guy, but I guess not. I wouldn't have been smart enough to even offer a guess. If you asked me, I would just be like, I, I don't know where Kyle Anderson went and played college ball, but I know he was drafted by the Spurs and won a summer league championship with him, baby. Go Becky Hamm. Yeah, he absolutely did. And Josh Selby. So Josh Selby is actually still playing basketball. And I'm going to absolutely butcher the fuck out of this club that he plays for. But I'm going to try it anyway. Plays for Piano Zweigsvidis Pasvilas of the Lithuanian Basketball League. If we have any listeners in Lithuania, I am so sorry for what I just did to your language, but I had to give it the good old college try. Well, that is my my guy of summer, Randy Foy, and I feel pretty confident that I think he's going to come out on top today, but I <laughs> would love to hear, Diaz, who the second person he's going to defeat it. Well, I'm going to put my foot down, and I'm going to say the greatest Puerto Rican football player in history, Mr. Salsa Vance himself from the New York Giants, Victor Cruz. Ooh, <laughs> all right. Let's hear it for it, Victor Cruz. The soon-to-be probably, at best, third most well-known Cruz if O'Neill keeps it up. Once again, Irish hero O'Neill Cruz on the Pittsburgh Pirates. I do love O'Neill Cruz. I do think he's going to be really good. But somebody who was really good, but not too good, but maybe too good for this category, but I'm going to talk about him anyway is Victor Cruz. Uh, It is fitting that he ended up with the Giants because he is a a Jersey man to begin with. He's born in Patterson, New Jersey on November 11th, 1986 to Blanca Cruz and Michael Walker. Uh, Michael was a firefighter. 
Michael was African-American descent. Victor's mother is Puerto Rican. Uh, so that is how we get Victor Cruz. He goes to Patterson Catholic High School in Patterson, where he is very successful. His senior year, uh, he wins all state honors playing in New Jersey. His team goes 11-0, undefeated. They go on to capture the New Jersey Parochial Group 1 Championship. He catches 42 passes, 19 of them for touchdowns. An incredibly, incredibly efficient score of the football. That is an absurd ratio. So, I wasn't able to figure out too many details about the team. What I'm gathering from that is they were probably a run the ball between the 20s, and once we get down there... Fuck it, throw it up. Victor Cruz has to be down there somewhere. So that would be my interpretation of their strategy. He did take one year post high school graduation. So graduates high school 2003. Takes one more year to go to Bridgeton Academy, which is a prep academy. One year thing. He goes up there in North Bridgeton, Maine. What's up? 47 catches for 869 yards and eight touchdowns in one season there. Following that, he gets noticed, he gets recruited, and he signs to go play with UMass, University of Massachusetts, starting in 2005. Now, he didn't play in 2005 because he had a hard time figuring out the academic side of things. That was part of the reason why he went to this prep academy. And unfortunately, the first year he gets to UMass, he doesn't quite figure it out. So it's sent home from the team in 2005, say, hey, figure your stuff out, come back 2006. Once you're able to get that balance going, then you can play some football for us. 2006, the exact same thing happens. He cannot get his grades in order. He's dismissed from the team. Coach says, all right, Victor, we're going to give you a one more shot. Three strikes are out. If you come back to 2007 and you're able to balance both, we'll make it happen. And that is where he does figure it out, to his credit. He would play all four years at UMass. He would actually go on to graduate with his uh, Bachelor of Arts in Afro-American studies. So went the whole four years, got his degree very well. All at UMass, pretty successful. Freshman year doesn't garner any honors, but for 2008 and 2009, his junior and senior seasons now, he does make first team all CAA. This is before UMass made the leap to FCS. So he's still playing in the CAA. I'm sure some incredible battles with uh, Joe Flacco in that 2007 year when he was with UMass. Delaware had a five overtime game that year that I went to. It was against Richmond. I thought for a second it might have been UMass, but that was a three overtime game in 2003. It is disturbing how much I know about Delaware football. <laughs> anyway, for his career, Victor Cruz finishes up 131 catches, which put him fourth on the all-time receptions list. And this is despite the fact that he did not start until his junior year. Freshman, sophomore seasons... Not getting much playing time. Junior year comes onto the scene. Finishes with just 11 touchdowns for his whole career. So as compared to the 19 in his high school senior year, not as good. And just under 2,000 career receiving yards. As I said, made all CAA for his last two years. So that's not enough to get drafted. It is enough to get noticed. So he goes through the whole 2010 NFL draft. Does not get picked. But the New York Giants, they know this is a local kid. UMass isn't that far from New York either. So he said, let's take a shot on him. And where he really bursts onto the scene, and the first memories that I have of Victor Cruz is that 2010 preseason. 
Xavier may remember that in the Giants-Jets preseason game that year, Victor Cruz ate. He had a lot, actually. So he had six catches for 145 yards, and hearkening back to his high school days, half of those six catches were for touchdowns. Six, 145, three touchdowns. And I remember... That's it. so efficient. That is a level of efficiency like any bureaucracy in the world would murder for to have. Let's just say that wasn't the only time Victor Cruz was insanely efficient against the New York Jets. Oh, oh, we'll get there, Xavier. Don't you worry. All, all roads lead to the Jets losing, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, but uh, <laughs> we'll get there. But I, I just remember after that game, it was like the lead story on SportsCenter. It was like, look at this fucking Victor Cruz guy. Six catches, three touchdowns. He's doing the salsa dance after he scores. He's a hit. Ends up leading the whole NFL in preseason receiving yards that year with 297. And he tied for the lead with uh, four touchdown grabs. Got one additional throughout that preseason. This is enough for him to earn a spot on the 53-man roster. Now, he's still not a top receiver by any means. Probably the last receiver on the depth chart. And uh, his stats this rookie season reflect that. So he plays in three games, has no receptions, has no targets, no anything. Just a special teams guy. He has a hamstring injury in game three which does unfortunately knock him out for the rest of the season. And now, you know, there's question marks, right? We're, we're coming into the 2011 season. Sure, this guy had one great preseason. He made the roster. He is far from guaranteed to make the team coming back in 2011. That doesn't matter. Victor Cruz has another good preseason, comes out, makes the roster, and puts together an incredible 2011 season. Victor Cruz, in their first game that year against the Eagles, and this pains me to say, Victor Cruz went off in that game. Had a, uh, had a nice touchdown catch over top of two defenders, uh, which he then took all the way to the end zone. Finishes the game with three catches for 110 yards, and hearkening back to that high school efficiency, two touchdowns. They do this, they beat the Eagles. We'll advance forward a bit. October 2nd, they're playing the Cardinals. The Giants are down three. Late in the game, just under three minutes left to play. Cruz gets a catch. And he's still kind of, I guess, in his college mindset because he catches it as he goes to the ground, replaces it down. Hell yeah, first down. Cardinals know the NFL rules. <laughs> they pick it up. They start running. The ref says, no, no, no. He's down, he's down, he's down. Cardinals don't challenge it. All replays show he did not even come close to getting touched. On the very next play, Eli throws a game-winning touchdown pass to Hakeem Nix. Go forward one more week. Week five, they do lose, but Victor Cruz has another big highlight. Has a one-handed touchdown catch on a 68-yard bomb. It was tipped, secures it, comes down, does his salsa dance. We go forward now to week 16. Giants are competing for some playoff position. We got the, the battle for New York against the Jets. In this game, Victor Cruz sets an NFL record, ties it, I should say, with a 99-yard reception for a touchdown against the Jets. It was one of those. Yeah. Xavier, I mean, do you want to describe the play? I can describe the play, Xavier. No, no, you, you, you describe the play, please. I, I don't want to So obviously, that. They're, they're pinned deep. They're just trying to get some room to, like, potentially punt the ball even. But they just don't want to be backed up. So they throw like kind of like a quick out to Cruz. He catches it. He's like, ah, do I want to go out of bounds? Nah, let me just like plant my feet here. And then when he turns around, he sees, oh, wow, there's like nothing but green grass ahead of me. 
and just takes off down the sideline, 99-yard touchdown. People point to this and say, this was the turning point of the Giants season. They're kind of just meandering through the year. I didn't get the score at the time, but it was a close game with the Jets. And this is the, the score that kind of blew the game open. I just want to say and, real quick, Diaz did a beautiful job describing that play in one Xavier abdicated. I want to do real quick uh, my attempt at describing Xavier's face during the description of that play. <laughs> I'll do it in just one word, defeated. Yeah, defeated. I mean, this, it's kind of hard to uh, feel worse than giving up a 99-yard touchdown catch against the team that you share a stadium with and that you've always been the second fiddle to. And also that my dad got to laugh at me a whole bunch after that as the very big Giants fan, me, Jets fan. He's gotten a lot of joy at my expense. A house divided, <laughs> if you will, was not a house divided in the next week when he pulled into the Jerry Dome down in Dallas for a do or die for the last wild card spot in the NFC. Victor wasted no time in making his stamp on this. He he puts the first score of the game on the board with a 74-yard touchdown catch. He finished that game with six catches for 178 yards. And another big catch in the fourth quarter, which set up a field goal to put the Giants up two scores. They go on to win that game 31-14. In this season, he sets the Giants' single-season franchise record with 1,536 receiving yards on 82 catches for going back to high school, so much less efficient, only nine touchdowns. He would have kept those ratios. We're talking like 35-40 right now, Victor, but he does fall off a little bit with that efficiency. Still does put up the franchise record for receiving yards in a season. One other fun note from that season that I didn't realize until I did my research, Eli Manning set the NFL record for fourth quarter touchdown passes in that season with 15. You know what I remember from that season? I remember you yelling at me after the Giants beat the Jets because the Eagles had just beaten the Jets and you needed the Jets to beat the Giants so you could make the playoffs. And then you also yelled at me because the Jets lost that game. So my dad made fun of me and you yelled at me both because of that game. Xavier, I have a loud voice, so I don't think I yelled. <laughs> I think I was just like disappointed and energetic. I apologize if you felt yelled at. Despite setting the franchise record for receiving yards and putting up all these incredible statistics, Cruz was named second team All-Pro. He was not named to the Pro Bowl. And I thought that was a little ridiculous at first. But then I looked at the receivers that made the Pro Bowl that year for the NFC. You want to take a guess at the four? Julio Jones. Julio Jones was not in the league yet. Oh, my apologies. Well, yeah, Calvin Johnson. Calvin Johnson. Randall Cobb? Not Randall Cobb, but there is a package receiver. You put the two uh, back. Oh, oh uh, Greg Jennings. Greg Jennings. So you got two more. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm caught off on Greg Jennings. One of the most harder hidden safeties in the league. <laughs> Fuck it. I'm going to put the team on my back, though. <laughs> if I give teams, it'll make it incredibly obvious, so I'll just do okay. divisions. NFC West. Larry Fitzgerald. Larry Fitzgerald. And uh, NFC South. Roddy White? Roddy White was an alternate that year. God damn it. Roddy White was an excellent guy, David. Oh, Steve Smith. Steve Smith. I was about to say, I was gonna, the hint I was going to give to you, James. Yeah, was, Ravens legend. <clears throat> Ravens legend, make, Steve Smith. 8-9, ice up, sign, Steve Smith. So, given the fact that three of those four guys are Hall of Famers and the fourth is Greg Jennings, <laughs> I, I can understand why Victor Cruz wasn't able to necessarily eke out 
a Pro Bowl that year. This, of course, was the second year that the Giants went on to beat the Patriots in the Super Bowl. Uh, Victor Cruz wasn't too involved in that game, did have four catches, 25 yards, one touchdown. Um, but his performance against the 49ers in the previous game is particularly important to them getting through. He had zero catches, zero yards in the second half on and then through overtime. But in that first half, 10 catches for 142 yards. Very clearly, the Niners then prioritized their defense around shutting him down from then on. And they did. But without Victor Cruz going off like that in the first half, probably doesn't lead to uh, them going on to take care of that game and then go win the Super Bowl. After I appreciate that season, recap because I, of course, did not watch that game because Lee Evans and Billy Cundiff had just murdered me. It's, that was Those were very tough scenes. No, we're, we're getting, I like tough. that we're getting to the point where we have RTG crossover. This was also the Sage Rosenfels backup Giants if he did not have strep throat that developed into a blood infection. And so. he could have played against Lee Evans in the Super Bowl if Lee Evans had made a fucking catch. <laughs> uh, the RTG universe just continues to expand. Giants go on to win the Super Bowl that year. Also after that year, uh, Victor Cruz got an invitation to participate on Dancing with the Stars solely for his salsa dancing after the touchdown. People, like, love this shit. First of all, it's important to, to note the salsa dancing is a tribute to his grandmother who did unfortunately pass away before his NFL career started, but his grandma taught him how to salsa dance. So he took that upon himself, like, all right, it's going to be, like, my tribute to her. The New York Daily News had an entire article written about his salsa dancing technique from a dance instructor. That's how... <laughs> enthralled people were with just this this majestic movement but he did turn down dancing with the stars he said i only danced in the end zone so full respect to that so in the 2012 season defending that super bowl title and this is just as, as much a testament of anything to the fact that the pro bowl is just a popularity contest of course in his first year victor cruz is gonna make the pro bowl his second year with about 500 less receiving yards. He does go on to make the Pro Bowl. Finished with 86 catches for 1,092 yards and 10 touchdowns in that season. Does make the Pro Bowl. And uh, another thing that he does, which I just think is really important to touch on, is 2012 was unfortunately when the Sandy Hook shooting happened. One of the victims, Jack Pinto, uh, had a Victor Cruz jersey that he would wear to school all the time. So for the rest of the season thereafter from the Sandy Hook tragedy... He wore a tribute on his shoes and permanent marker. One shoe would read R.I.P. Jack Pinto. And then the other said, Jack Pinto is my hero. Went on to visit the Pinto family. And he said, I felt it was only right that I pay my respects to him and be as comforting to that family as much as I can. He would uh, give his cleats and his gloves from the first game after uh, to Pinto's brother. So I just want to touch on sports as, as much as we love them for the competition on the field. They're an incredibly important way for humans to, to bond with each other and to help each other through tough situations. So I thought it was really nice that Victor did that for the Pinto family after the Sandy Hook tragedy. Going forward, Victor Cruz, after this 2012 season, is still on his rookie contract. So still basically on the minimum salary. His contract is set to expire, though, so he signs the $2.8 million tender for the one year. But the Giants want to take care of him. So they sign him to a five-year 45.8 million dollar deal 
which is added on to the end of that tender. So it fully becomes a six-year, just under $50 million deal that he ends up signing. And it's good that he signed that because he starts running into some injury problems shortly thereafter. He suffered a heel bruise in the preseason of this year. So the same preseason which gave him his glory could have started the downfall. He still plays in almost every game that year. Uh, plays in 14. But his stats do take a bit of a hit. Only 73 catches that year. For the first time in his career, does not break the 1,000-yard threshold. Only had 998. And four touchdowns to go with that. We go into 2014. He's off to a good start in this year. Through six games, 41 targets, 23 receptions, 337 yards, just the one touchdown. Starting to fall off a little bit, but still doing his thing out there. He suffers a terrible injury on Sunday Night Football against the Eagles. Tears his patellar tendon, and uh, this knocks him out. Uh, he's obviously not going to be able to come back from that this season. So that, that's it for 2014. In 2015, he is trying to come back. His patella injury is still bothering him. He's participating in training camp, but not, not going through full drills or anything like that. And in coming back, and what happens so often with these injuries, you got the one injury, you compensate it with the other thing, the other thing ends up getting hurt. He aggravates his calf, tries to rest, eventually gets to the point that they had to do surgery on this calf. So he ends up missing the entire 2015 season after his 2014 season was cut off prematurely. Finally, coming back for 2016, he is active, he is healthy, he is back in the NFL. And in the Giants opener against the Cowboys, comes back in as good a fashion as you possibly can. He catches the game-winning touchdown, and of course he celebrates with that famous salsa dance. The next week, they play the Saints. Gets another game-winning touchdown catch late in the game. And it's like, all right, Victor Cruz is back. This is it. That was about all of what he did that year. Ends up with just 39 catches for 586 yards, but had those glorious moments in the sun to start that season. Giants make the playoffs. They go on to lose 38-13 to to the Packers. You might remember the Cancun photo. Of the yacht. All of them posted up on the beach. Or yeah, all of them posted up on the yacht. Victor Cruz was in that picture, and uh, Victor Cruz also got spanked by the Packers 38-13. Incredibly, after this, after all of his overcoming adversity and fighting back to come back to the Giants, they showed just how much of a poverty franchise they are when they released Victor Cruz after this season. Can't blame Odell for this. I guess, I guess Victor Cruz ended up being the scapegoat. This would be it uh, for Victor Cruz in the NFL. He does sign with the Bears the following offseason, but he doesn't make it through final cuts. Giants had a lot of injuries in the wide receiver room that season, so there was some speculation that Victor might end up going back, but it ultimately never worked out. And then finally, in the midst of preseason 2018, Victor Cruz did announce his retirement, signed a one-day contract with the Giants to go out officially as a Giant, and uh, that would be it for his football career. A couple other notes that I want to touch on. First of all, his UMass quarterback uh, was named Liam Cohen. Liam Cohen is currently the offensive coordinator for the LA Rams. So, and they were roommates as well. So quite a room that they had there in terms of the future NFL prospects, especially coming from UMass. One thing that he started while he was a player and it's still active, you can still look this up. He started Young Whales, uh, which is a clothing line 
They offered a lot of shirts, a lot of everything. The website is still active today. You can still place an order. The only thing they have now is hats. Uh, they have five hats. You can get the gray, the white, the red, the black, or the blue Young Whales hat. Uh, they're each going for $30. The blue is available? Oh, my God. The blue is available, but you're going to have to pay a price, James. They're all going for 30 bucks a pop. That's less than I expected, to be completely frank. 30 bucks a pop on those Victor Cruz hats. He, he was one of the first models for that line. Dude, if you want to guess the other giant that was also a model for Victor Cruz's clothing line. Ooh, ooh. Uh, did Eli do it? Not, oh my, I wish. Think Nigerian. Uh, OCU Minura? OCU Minura. Yeah! OCU Minura hopped in to, to help model the line with Victor Cruz. Young Whales. Google it, listeners, if you'd like. $30 hat. If any listener actually orders that hat and you send me proof of it, I will pay for it for you. But you need to send me a picture of you wearing it before. <laughs> this is this it. is like a cash rebate. You have to show proof of purchase, and then you get the rebate. Proof of purchase, send us a picture with you wearing the hat, and I will reimburse you fully for the hat. But uh, that's, that's Victor Cruz, so did go on to have a, a great deal more regular season success than, than our other two guys, but... Got his debut in the preseason. I, I will always remember ESPN just lighting up about him in preseason. I wanted, I wanted to touch on, again, the greatest Puerto Rican football player of all time, <laughs> Victor Cruz. I do like the Puerto Rican angle, but to be fair, we've not neglected the island here in the hall so far. Of course not. And I would never suggest so, but still near and dear to my heart. Both of Both Xavier and mine are near our hearts, so... Let's go ahead and let our hearts battle it out. Let's convene this guy Bunel fully and let's get down to business. Diaz, I can see in your eyes you want to vote for Randy Foy. I can see it. Listen, it's so tough for me coming off of having just argued for Victor, but I I go back to the lawyer analogy. Saul Goodman knew that all of his clients were guilty, but he still had to argue for them. And I still had to argue for Victor Cruz, but no, uh, Randy Foy is just such a... Like, then you got me thinking about that whole early 2000s Nova team, because, yeah, you got Kyle Lowry, you got Alan Ray, you had Mike Nardi, Sheridan, who I just learned today is gay. Great for him. And anytime I get a, a trip down memory road when it comes to basketball, and particularly Big Five basketball, it's going to be hard for me to say no to that. I will say in Victor Cruz's defense, I remember his salsa commercials maybe more vividly than I remember any other, like, NFL players' commercials in in history. His, like, Tostitos, that was a very, very smart marketing deal, Tostitos. Good job. No, I mean, the salsa dance is iconic, and, God, man, okay, I'm not going to do it. I was going to rant about Madden, like, making big things over, ooh, you can do all the special dances, but no, and don't put this in. In fact, I'm cutting myself off, but please. (laughs) What do you think, Xavier? Well... As much as I appreciated Diaz's presentation on uh, Victor Cruz, I think he was too successful during the regular season to to, to, to really fit, even if you know he got his start through the preseason. Not too good to be a guy, but too good for this category, I will yes. accept. Yes. Just too yeah. good for this category. So that means, obviously, it's down to Randy Foy versus Sage Rosenfels. And I'm a big fan of the Sage Rosenfeld story because it was many preseasons and not just one event. This is true. 
But the having the first ever Summer League MVP is also, that is a good moment in history. That is a good preseason timestamp. So I do like that. I'm kind of, I'm in the middle right now. I can, I can go I, either way. My rationale for Randy was, look, you know, you only get so many shots at Summer League. You do not see most players suiting up for Summer League more than, at most, two seasons. You know, if he's going to get those limited opportunities, why not have the one be the one that counts maybe more than any other Summer League and launches NBA Summer League is what it is today. So that was kind of like, look, there's no one in hoops who can put up the kind of preseason numbers that someone like Sage Rosenfeld did. The Tom Brady of the preseason is untouchable in that field. I do look at, though, again, as we get to the butter guy effect, does the Summer League, as I love it today, and when I saw Furkan Korkmaz put up 38 points at 1 a.m. three years ago, do I get to see that Furkan Korkmaz moment, if not for Randy Foy? I don't think so. We don't get that. We don't get, again... 2022 WNBA Coach of the Year, Becky Hammond, uh, getting her first professional coaching championship with that 2014 team. Which also, may I just say, winning the NBA title and the Summer League title back-to-back, my goodness, Spurs. Right, because theoretically you should have the worst pool of players coming back for the Summer League as the champion. But now we got slow-mo Kyle Anderson, baby. You know what, I I think I'm leaning towards Randy Foy. Even if when when I was looking into preseason like players, the basketball one that I, I saw that was really interesting to me was Marcus Williams, who played more summer league games than NBA games, where he played four different years in summer league. But I do like the Randy Foy butter guy effect. So as much as I love Sage Rosenfels, I think I'm happy with with Randy Foy. Well, just to give you a little consolation, like we we like to talk about the tangential connections that we get from our guys and Marcus Williams. On that same all-rookie first team as our boy Randy Foy and his dark nemesis, Brandon Roy. Just <laughs> Randy Foy with a mustache. I mean, it's, it, it sounds like I've convinced the two of you for Randy Foy, so even if I wasn't already voting for him, there we go. Sounds like we got it. So if I may do the honors, James. It is this hall's great honor to, by unanimous consent, which is increasingly rare these days, this by, the first unanimous, one by unanimous consent, it is our great honor to induct Villanova Wildcat, Minnesota Timberwolves. Might have been tangentially a Portland Trailblazer for like a couple seconds. <laughs> the opposite of Brandon Roy and fierce LGBTQ ally Randy Foy into the Hall of Guy. Welcome, Randy. Welcome, Randy. We will... I guess mirror image your plaque from trying to like personalize them still. I'll make everything and I'll just flip it in Photoshop. Just put the text in reverse. Yeah, I think that would be a good touch. There we go. I'm so far behind on those. Listener, I'm going to try very hard to have them updated by Monday when you listen to this. Also, I want to take a moment, Diaz. You know what was particularly special about Victor Cruz? What was that? Ladies and gentlemen, Victor Cruz is the 100th guy that we have discussed on this show in its entirety. I will real quick say, this includes guys brought for our consideration by outside guests, but including those entrants, which there are four, Victor Cruz is the 100th guy brought up on this show. Beautiful. What an honor and what a privilege it has been to spend all this time talking about just random people from sports that 
may have just been a fleeting thought in our heads. Could have gone like the wind 15 seconds later, but no, we dedicate this show to those guys and it's, it's been great and building out truly the guy universe. The fact that it's getting to the point now that there's so many crossovers of like, Oh yeah, well, this guy actually was related to Victor Cruz's story. It, it is, it has been a pleasure to, to take this long winding trip down memory road uh, with the two of you. Oh, what a tangled web we have woven. We, we have dedicated ourselves to this, and dear listener, we appreciate your dedication to listening to this for some reason. Not for some reason. I need to have some self-confidence. We do a fine job here. Xavier, any final words after our fine job this week? You know what? We've lasted more than seven episodes. Seven so. and a half. He has one where he and Jay Wright just talk about someone that they both knew that died previously. So I'm giving him seven and a half. All right. Well, we still have more than seven and a half episodes. There Which, if you told me that last year, I might not have believed you. So, I'll take it. And I think that brings an end to this episode, guys. I've been James. I've been the very special guest, Xavier. And I'm Diaz. And as Red Sanders once said to his UCLA football team, guying isn't everything. It's the only thing. Guys, 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 guys,